0: Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Gentlemen,
1: welcome Ben to uh, the Resolve happy hour. uh, stage with the riffs And uh, you know we we like to think of this as an opportunity for us to enjoy a little bit of um, of uh, sort of a happy hour slash water cooler conversation that whilst people are in lockdown, you know you you may not be able to engage in some of these conversations. So it's a bit of fun, wide ranging as well. So everyone out there, uh, be aware that if you're seeking actual advice, go get that from a professional in your jurisdiction. And with that said, yeah, with that said, cheers! I am having a uh, Basil Hayden bourbon today. Uh, it's going Can down like razor again? blades. A Basil Hayden bourbon. Okay, it's going down like a, razor what blades. What is it? That's an, <laughs> an episode, Basil and bourbon? <laughs> it's the it's the brand name.
2: Anyway, cheers, gentlemen. Oh, oh, oh! I see. I got you. Okay. Cheers, cheers gentlemen,
1: and, and welcome, Ben. I don't know if you grabbed yourself a beverage or oh, rosé. You're you're a sober guy, or
2: whatever. yeah, no, I, no, I, I drink. I, I have a diet Pepsi for me. I didn't have any booze in my uh, in my office, but I wait till they. My three young kids are in bed before I start drinking, I suppose.
0: Amen. A good plan always. Prudent, prudent. Yeah, you don't want to start getting aggressive too early. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm now so I, it's hard to, to drink around my microphone, actually, with the boom yeah. on. St- i stuff. I have to drink with my left hand. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. I, I actually I, I always drink with my left hand, but that's another story. One day. well that's <laughs> right. Um, well, hey, should we, should we uh, uh, Ben, you want to introduce yourself? I'm, I'm sure you come with, uh, with a... People are fairly familiar with uh, yourself and your firm, but why not get it out there in the beginning and uh, and uh, we'll get started.
2: the yeah. stage? Yeah. I work for a firm called Ritholtz Wealth Management. We're a independent investment advisor firm based in New York, but roughly half of our client, half of our uh, employees work remotely. So I was actually the f- I was the guinea pig, so I I've been working there since 2015. I think there was seven. I was the seventh employee to join, and I was the first one to work remotely. <clears throat> And I got to know Josh Brown and Barry Ridholz, who founded the firm through the financial blogging space. It's kind of a weird thing that I ever got into. it. I kind of started up writing a blog called The Wealth of Common Sense, just on a whim. I just thought, like, oh, you know, I, I have something to say. I'm sick of my friends and family asking me questions. I just want to answer questions for normal people like this. I was, I've been working in the institutional space my whole career. Nonprofits, pensions, endowments, foundations. And I was getting all these questions because people knew I was in the investment field. So I started writing about it. had been writing for a couple of years and got to know them a little bit because I would go to New York City to, because I live in Michigan, would go to New York City, meet with investment managers that we worked with and got to know Josh and Barry a Little, realized we had some shared interests and principles and values and such and ended up teaming up in 2015. I worked with them. They said, hey, move to Manhattan. And we had just had my first daughter. And that conversation never got off the ground with my, uh, my wife. Now, if it would have been the Cayman Islands, like you guys, I, maybe that conversation would have gone a little further. But so working remotely, w- which has been nice for us through the pandemic. So we now have up to 30 plus employees at the firm, and half of us work remotely, in, and actually, I guess now everyone's working remotely, but half of us work in different places. So we have people in California and Florida and New Orleans and North Carolina and all over the country. And so we've always been a remote, sort of paperless firm. So for us, this, this pandemic and the disruption has been relatively minor, and, and we have done most of our communication with prospects and clients like this in a video call or a phone call or email. And so that's been a pretty seamless process for us. And and I do a lot of writing about personal finance and the markets and what's going on and trying to help people, you know, make decisions with their investments. And one of the reasons that I started writing in the first place is just to help myself process a lot of this stuff. And I, I never really was a writer before I got, you know, in high school and college, I I was never a big writer or reader. I think it just took finding the right subject matter. So once I got into the markets and investing, I realized like, oh, this is this is really fascinating to me and all the different wormholes you can go down from the behavioral side to the quantitative side and all these different things. Um, I just sort of fell in love with it and and writing about it actually piqued my interest even more and got me more involved and more interested in the process. So that that's kind of the, the deal with me.
3: When, when did you start? It's funny ben? how that works, right? The, um, the cross-domain type of experience where, I mean, I, I went through my degrees in psychology, and and a big part of psychology is applied statistics. And uh, I hated the applied statistics part of psych when I went through it as a uh, in an academic program. And then I came out and spent a little time investing. Did not use applied statistics at the beginning. Um, you know, did a lot of sort of global macro stuff, et cetera. And then decided for lots of reasons that we I wanted to move into sort of the systematic space. And all of a sudden, all of those applied statistics. Lessons that I learned in university became very meaningful and very, be- very interesting and fun and engaging and and all of a sudden I wanted to write about some of the things that fell out of of that domain and so it's just it's funny you know you think you don't like something and then you realize it applies to something else that you really enjoy and and it, it takes on a whole new life.
2: Yeah, I went to a small liberal arts college and. I thought this stuff is such a waste of time for me, all these different areas that they made us focus on. And now I come back and say, oh, you know, it was actually making more, more well, well-rounded and it actually does help to have that that wider base of, of knowledge. And and most of the books now that I read, the ones I'm more interested in are those ones that are, you know, vaguely about business and economics in the markets, but um, in different mm-hmm. way. And you can apply them to the stuff that you're doing in this space.
3: Speaking of books, you yeah. yeah. are out with a new book, right? What, what's it called and what's it about?
2: Yeah, I, I this was kind of my pandemic play. It's called Everything You Need to Know About Saving for Retirement. And actually I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. We when we got going in this thing, we said, all right, we need to we're not gonna have any face-to-face, you know, in terms of our employees. Because I, I would go to New York a few times a year and we have an office in Chicago. I I could hop down there. So we started doing these video calls like this. And at first, you know, it was kind of a see what happens and how it works. And now we've we're twice a week, all thirty plus employees are on one of these calls. And we had one early on, and we have a, a guy who runs our retirement corporate retirement plan named Dan LaRosa. And he we we do these interviews where Josh Brown, our CEO, will ask every employee at the firm some questions, you know, what are some pain points for you? What is something that the rest of the your colleagues don't know about what you do? And he said, you know, you guys all produce all this content in blogs and podcasts and books and such. He said, But I'm working with these everyday normal 401k retirement investors. And he's like, and they are just not going to read it, they just don't care about this stuff. Or it's over their head. They don't want it. They don't want to know about the markets. They just want to know about the basic stuff. And I kind of stepped back and said, "Well, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to get into this. I wanted to help regular, normal people explain this stuff, understand it a little better." And I, I think that's probably something we take for granted. Being in this space is that most people outside of it just aren't involved in it on a daily basis like we are. And you almost have to take a step back sometimes to realize even people with you know the nonprofit space I've worked in, a lot of these people who are on the boards and committees, they're not. Involved in this stuff on a daily basis, and you have to step back and re- realize how, like, the storytelling you have to go through and the explanations you have to have and the expectations you have to set. It it really makes sense and not to assume people are as interested in it as you are or know as much as you do. So he said, you know, I just need something that is just bare bones basics. Help these people understand why it's important to save and, and can increase their savings over time. And so I said, all right, well, let's work on an outline. Me and him hashed out an outline after we talked about it. I came up with, you know, 20 different topics and he helped me. And I wrote this for basic people, you know, outside of the finance world. My hope is people inside the finance world will know someone in their life where they'll say, you know what, my brother-in-law just doesn't know what he's doing. I want to give him this book to help him on his way. And it's it's really more of a personal finance book than an investing book. And it shows how, especially when you're just getting started, why saving is so much more important than investing. And I think investing is something that you can pick up along the way. And if you if you build those savings habits. And really, like automate a lot of this process and get that stuff going. You can figure out the investing stuff later. I think if you can get that personal finance stuff going, and, and a lot of the stats I found just it—it's kind of shocking. So the Fed puts together all these this data on how people are doing when they 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 run some of their surveys, and they they found this is as of 2016. So maybe it's a little better now. Who knows? They found half of all people age 55 to 61 have $21,000 saved for retirement. That that's the median number, meaning half half of the people in that age group have less than that saved for retirement. And and it's not much better if you go down the age spectrum, it obviously gets worse. I think it's like 40 or 50% of people 18 to 29 have $0 in savings. So um, we felt neg- negative did, did
3: gets positive
2: did <laughs> yeah. you get
1: any uh did you get any sense of of the the direction of that? Is that getting better? is that getting worse when when you looked at those stats?
2: Well, unfortunately, for young people, and I think there are some explanations for this, but especially if you look at the millennials versus their parents, the baby boomers it, it's something like thirty percent less wealth now at that age than their parents had. So if you look at someone like thirty to thirty five and of course, a big reason for that is you know more people now are going to school and putting off things like buying a house and getting married. So that's part of it, that people in the past were doing those things earlier, and they were getting jobs earlier and not going to grad school. And so you hope that those young people are more educated and they'll, they'll make up for it down the line. But yeah, a lot of the numbers are unfortunately getting worse for people. And, and people are living longer these days too. So right. m- maybe they have more time to play catch up. And I get into a little bit about that in the book, but... Um, yeah, that unfortunately, a lot of people are just they're they're just not in a good place when it comes to this. So so they're reliant on things like social security, or you know, as like their only means of retirement for a lot of people in the states.
0: Or it may, maybe it's all off book and cryptocurrency for the millennials. I I have hope <laughs> that they're yeah. richer than than we give them credit for.
2: Well, yeah, and, and it's possible that yeah, I think those are kind of retirement assets. So I that's I think been a positive of this pandemic is that you know some people scoff at the way it's happening and that these these young people are getting involved in things like Robin Hood and trading stocks and but i think it's actually a pretty good thing that you know people were bored and nothing else to do and they decided to get into the markets so obviously there's going to be some bad habits developed that way and some people are going to you know lose all of that money but the fact that people decided okay markets are down i want to jump in with you know both feet here i think that's actually a net positive for me
0: did you, you, I think I read from you that you had your initial experience in the market wasn't great. Um, was that, was that you? Like that, that was one, like a formative um, experience you had
2: before you got into the business or. That, that may have been Michael. Your, that, that may have been you? Michael who was my co podcast co-host, who was more of a trader. I just, I, I kind of have always started Started slow. I I came out of school and I had all these friends getting amazing jobs and making a lot of money and frankly way more money than me. And I think part of that is is my fault because I came out and I was one of these people. I was never one of these kids who was reading Barron's in the Wall Street Journal in high school or middle school. I was more interested in sports, and you know, I picked my college based on because I could play football there. I I didn't look at the academics at all, <laughs> which you know probably hopefully helped a little bit. And I probably partied too much in school, and and maybe that helped me on my uh, socializing aspects. But I went into my senior year of college realizing I have no idea what the hell I want to do in my life, and so I wasn't one of the. And I had all these friends who had you know I'm going to be an investment banker, and, and I knew I didn't even know what these jobs were. I knew nothing about the markets. I couldn't have explained to you what a stock and bond or I was way way behind, and I. Luckily, got an internship with an investment analyst um, at this place called Janie Montgomery Scott. I did a semester in Philadelphia, which is probably the best thing that happened to me. And the, these people, they just sat me down and were like, read the Wall Street Journal. And they like gave me the basics and started me and really kind of brought me along and realized, like, okay, this, I, I'm interested in numbers. I'm studying finance. I think this can help. So I was starting from a, a really low place. And I think that it kind of helped me because I realized I know absolutely nothing and I'm. Listening, sitting in these meetings and listening to these people, and everything they're saying is going over my head. And so I realized I had to learn. So I just started like this journey of like self study and, and reading every book I could find. So every person in this firm that I talked to, it was all these different, different analysts covering different sectors. Every time I would sit down with one of them and they would have a little, you know, job for me because I was the low man on the totem pole, I would ask them, like, what are your two or three favorite books on investing? And I started compiling a list and I just plowed over the next two or three years, I plowed through all these books. And that helped me just get this this better sense of like being part of the conversation understanding what people are talking about because it to me it was just such a foreign language and and so just getting started for me i was so far behind the eight ball that i had a lot of catching up to do and and actually my 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 wife who was my then girlfriend we had a long distance relationship where i'm working at in the detroit area and she's still going to school after college to her, her grad program and so i'm by myself in this city where i didn't know a lot of people and i just use that as a as a time to really you know, play catch up a little bit because I obviously didn't do it enough at school.
3: So you um, spent some time on the institutional side, and then decided to focus on on retail. Um, one of the things we've been chatting about on the podcast, and just in in general, is the fact that so many advisors in many high net worth, or even sort of medium net worth, um, private individuals tend to try to to orient their investment strategy so that it looks sort of like what some big institutions do. Like they, they maybe model it after the Yale endowment or after, you know, big pension plans, et cetera. And we always we always find that to be so silly because the these huge pension plans are so large that they they are the market and they have so many constraints on the type of investments they can make. And I'm just wondering, like just coming from the institutional side, what lessons did you bring from the institutional side that are that are actually applicable to private wealth and what ones did you realize later are just Private wealth should ignore and do something completely different.
2: One of the reasons I came to the more private side, and I, I actually do work with a handful of smaller institutions. We we have some nonprofits, but nothing like I was working with in the past. I actually butted heads with a lot of people in that space because, I so I I worked for an endowment. We we probably were one and a half billion, which a lot of people think is a lot of money, but in the foundation, endowment, pension world, that, that's that's not that much, right, in the overall grand scheme of things. And we had three of us that ran the investment office there, and 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 that's actually a space where we had all these different conferences and in um, memberships that you could join that it was like closed doors and dominance foundation groups. And these people would lay it all on the line. It was like, no, no media involved. It's like open book. Everyone can talk. And, and so it was a very open and honest group about how things worked. And my big takeaway from that group is that how political it is and you're dealing with committees and all these things. Um, but one of the reasons that all the, all that, all the politics there made it so difficult to, try to be like Yale. Not only did these, some of these places not have the resources and the expertise to do that, but they're trying to get these ideas past their boards and their committees and they couldn't. So they're almost doing it halfway. And it's like, if you're not going to go all the way and, you know, and have, you know, do it the full way, what's the point? Then you're just You're just taking the worst of this stuff, which is higher fees. Yeah, exactly. Half measures are are the worst. Exactly. And yeah. So I always thought like this doesn't make if we're gonna do this, let's do it. And if not, then we're just wasting money by paying some of these and you know, again, the size we were at, even at 1.5 billion, you know, we couldn't get a seat at the table with some of the best managers as it is. So we were getting the second and third helpings basically, you know, the leftovers. So I I kind of butted heads with that industry a little bit where I was telling a lot of them even you know whatever 10 billion and under I was kind of trying to tell them this probably doesn't make sense you guys should be probably in more liquid strategies and and if you're going to do it maybe instead of trying to pick 10 15 20 of these private equity managers or hedge funds just pick a couple of them because trying to be diversified in that space just gives you horrible returns and you're paying a high cost so I did butt heads a little bit in that space. So, so I, I one of the things I, I took away, yeah, is is just, you know, know your constraints as an investor no matter what, because if if you're trying to do something and you you go halfway, it's especially in that space where there's so much competition, that that's a tough place to be.
3: Or it's it's constraints. One of the things that we spend a lot of time on, actually with with um, especially high net worth clients and, and especially people that come out of the, the, the where their wealth is derived from the sale of a business right they are comfortable in the business space they're comfortable with private companies they think that's where wealth is generated and that transition from uh generating wealth which is typ- which typically comes at least for ex- more extreme wealth from concentrated investment of time and money in a in a single business that you control and operate right so you you come out of this framework where that's how wealth is built and and now you've got wealth from selling that business and your intuition says you should use the same techniques to preserve that wealth right for to achieve the other broader objectives that you have in your life and we always struggle with how do you sort of move a person from that wealth generating mindset to the wealth preservation or you know um sustainable wealth mindset do you have any insight on that
2: Yeah, it's tough. We had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a guy who has spent his entire career at a really well-known publicly traded company. He was a a high up executive there and has spent his whole career helping build that business and got a lot of stock options there, but also used a lot of his money to invest in similar businesses. And when he came to us and said, okay, I realize I need some, some help here. I need I need some advice and it's, I don't just need investment advice I need financial planning advice and I need to know what happens now because I'm reaching that next stage of my personal life where I want to make sure my family's okay and trying to unwind a lot of these privately held companies he owns is a real problem it's not easy and you you realize like if the first step is taking a look at here's everything you own here's your your sort of asset mix and you realize it's just this hodgepodge of different investments and there's no really coherent strategy and i don't think he ever realized that he never put it all in one place and said what am i doing here even though i have all this expertise so yeah it can be tough and especially when when you've made your money that way you know uh, the other side of it is a lot of people just they they don't want to lose sometimes they don't want to lose any of it because they've put their whole livelihood into it and they don't want to let go of control and give someone else the steering wheel so it, there is a lot of part psychologist in that, in those conversations and helping people understand, you know, yes, you were working your butt off for 30 years building this company, but now you have to let go of the steering wheel a little bit.
0: Yeah. Isn't that the job of the wealth manager, the psychologist's job? I think it's 90% of the work. For sure. We understand what you do, what your fiduciary duty is, but then how to nudge people along. Uh, You talk a lot about savings rates, right? Um, It's really tough to get anybody to save and it's really tough I found to get when I was uh, in my wealth book trying to get individuals to save without having some sort of trick attached to it right yeah I know like how do you think about the savings for the individual how much they should save and and what type of behavioral tricks they can use in order to make sure that they can be successful at it
2: yeah unfortunately a lot of that is a psychological game it's not like it's not as easy as just, you know, knowing what to do and then going out and doing it. So I in my book I talked that I found these statistics in a in a book. It, it said between 1989 and 2012, Americans collectively spent like a trillion dollars on weight loss solutions, exercise equipment. There was this huge boom. And what was the outcome of that? Obesity grew by 50% and severe obesity doubled. So we have all this like like the the exercise boom really started off in the 60s and 70s and really kicked into the 80s, you know and so people are throwing all this money at it and yet the outcome is people get less healthy right because you know it's a cliche to say personal finance is like exercising and eating right but it, but it's true because if you just have the knowledge that's not enough to change your behavior so yeah, you have to do something It's the same thing for for building wealth everyone knows well i should you know, pay myself first and live below my means and and all these things and save and invest for the future, but it's hard because people get overwhelmed, especially people who are outside of this business and don't know anything about it, and they don't know where to start, and they they think that, well, if I just know how to pick stocks, then that's my investment plan, but that's, you know, that's way down the line in terms of things that are important for creating a, you know, a sustainable financial plan, and you have to understand that it doesn't matter if you're the second coming of Warren Buffett if you can't save some money first and put it aside what's the point of having the world's greatest investment strategy if you don't have any money to invest? So yeah, I think you do have to trick people. And I think part of it is just, just starting small. So I talk about in the book about myself. When I came out of college, again, I didn't. I, I kind of started slow and I wasn't making a lot of money at all. And after saving a little bit of money for uh, an engagement ring for my future wife and uh, being on my own for the first time and paying some student loans and having a car payment for the first time in my life, I don't know, I had 50 bucks a month to save. I still did it, and I started it, and it was, I think it was building those savings habits from a young age, where I could I could see a little bit of slow progress, and it wasn't much, and I'd say, man, I'm getting nowhere here. But then I, you know, my career progressed, and I started making more, and then once I had those those habits built already, I could save some more and save some more, and I, and I think that the biggest thing for me was learning just to have that stuff automated and pretend like saving money is a bill each month. So in the in my book, I talk about you know pretend like it's a Netflix subscription or gym a gym membership where those savings are part of your bills, so every month you have it automatically out of your paycheck. You're take it's going into your retirement account or your uh, online savings account or whatever it is, wherever your money's going, your brokerage account. It's taken out automatically, and you realize that I'm spending whatever's left over. So if you try to go in with the idea that I'm gonna scrimp and save all month, and then whatever's left over, I'm gonna save. Like we don't have enough willpower to handle that because eventually you're just gonna spend whatever's there. So the point is to get it out of the way first and put it on autopilot and then spend whatever is left over. So you never even have to think about it.
1: If we, if we take that to the corporate level too, I think what you want to see corporations doing is having the auto enroll, the auto escalate. You want to see relatively um, a, a, a good uh, option for choices, but not too many because you don't want the paradox of choice getting in the way of actually just starting to save. Um and then you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit later about, you know, that transition from spender to uh or from saver to spender, which is I think a big topic, but I don't want to want to jump there. Now, um, was there so so you got the personal aspect of that, you've got a corporate, hopefully, aspect of that that we can we can nudge corporations to do that type of thing. Was was there anything else that that um was was a psychological trick to engage in for you know, for
2: honestly, in terms of the studies that I found, the that auto enroll stuff you mentioned was by far the biggest. So it's like the companies can help their employees automatically. So, so Vanguard has like a 1.3 trillion dollars in their 401k system, and they they looked at the companies that did automatic enroll, and then they have automatic escalation, which increases your savings over time, which I think is great too. So let's say you get a two or three percent raise each year. Say you save half of that raise or something, and it nev- you never see it hit your checking account in the first place, and it increases your saving. But they found that people who had automatic enroll for their employees had like fifty six percent higher savings rates than people who didn't, and and even for people who made less than fifty thousand dollars and were under the age of thirty five, their their savings rates were double what people were who didn't have the automatic enroll. So just having that, making someone opt out, and just making it easier, so you don't people don't have to think about it, and, and it's just done for them, and they can have the ability to opt out, but it's it's you know people will take the. Path of least resistance yeah it's yeah. funny because when they i when have it, opt out not not yeah, yeah. sorry yes. go ahead ron
0: you, no you. i was just saying that when i first uh, got out of school and worked for the largest insurance company in canada they i remember they the discussion was how difficult it was to get enrolled like the, the inefficiencies just the way they developed the software the amount of choices that you had in the manual life funds it was a nightmare to get it going and i thought it should be auto enroll and it should be in, like, don't spend money and time trying to make it easier to opt in. Opt everybody in and keep the inefficiencies in place so that it's nearly impossible to opt out. Yeah.
2: And that's right? the like, other you can
0: invert the problem.
2: The other good thing a lot of companies are doing is they're, they're making the default investment option. It used to be like the uh, stable value fund, which now would be paying nothing because interest rates are on the floor. Uh, they've changed that to target date funds, which admittedly are not perfect in so many ways but they're so much better than the alternative that most people would do because it automatically gives you this this fully diversified portfolio for so for someone who's just beginning and they're putting small amounts of money in 50, 100, 200 bucks a month whatever it is the, the fact that they can in one fund be completely diversified you know geographically across strategies between stocks and bonds without having to make those decisions themselves and then maybe when they build up a little bit of a nest egg they can go okay i realize this isn't a perfect strategy for me now i can diversify and and learn this stuff a little more but in terms of that creating baby steps to just get going, that, that's that been a huge win that they're all making those the the default option for people.
3: Did, did you- it's the equivalent of saving for a home, right? It's like the home is not a terrific investment. Well, historically, it, it hasn't been a terrific investment netted for inflation and operat- operating costs. But um, just the habit of having to sock money away every year, it doesn't really matter that the investment itself is not particularly... Um, robust. It's just
2: yeah. It's forced savings.
3: Yeah, it's forced savings. Exactly. You're basically putting into a money into a bank account. We, you know, the target date funds are imperfect too, but it's forced savings. You're putting money into a bank account, and and over time, it, hopefully it'll pay off. You know, one of the things that always um, bothered me when I was dealing with financial planning was that. Um, and, and actually, this was a really interesting conversation. Mike, you may remember this. We had this conversation with, uh, I think his name was Mike, who headed up the financial planning group at one of our previous firms. And he was a really thoughtful guy. Right. And yeah. um, he had incredible software and he had really good um, ideas. And And his ideas was that he wanted to present a, a super concise financial plan that acknowledged the ambiguity of... First of all, obviously market return trajectories, but also your life trajectory, right? Like included mortality assumptions, um, health, you know, morbidity assumptions, how, how long you're likely to be able to healthily work and all that kind of stuff and present this sort of concise plan that included all of these, these distributions, right? Acknowledging the probabilities and the uncertainties. And this is what he started out providing to advisors and quickly the backlash Uh, from advisors came, which was, first of all, clients don't understand the role of probability or uncertainty along any of the dimensions that you're um, dealing with in your plan. And second of all, they're not receiving this type of plan from others that they're sort of shopping their uh, portfolio around to. And so you, including fifth percentile outcomes, when the other advisor is providing a linear extrapolation of investment returns out for 50, 60 years and providing a 60 or 80 page booklet, we're just not able to compete. You know, How, how does an advisor try to do the right thing and acknowledge the uncertainties along all these different dimensions when the client doesn't really understand the, the fact that this 60 or 80 page document that extrapolates cash flows out for, for 50 or year, 80 years is completely meaningless. And what actually matters is is the uncertainty along with these different dimensions. You know, how, how do you think about that problem and communicate about it with clients?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think when our advisors go through this stuff, and, and we have a lot of client-facing advisors who are doing this on a daily basis, I think it's helpful to show the clients how much of it can be garbage in, garbage out. Of If we change this one little piece here, look at how your probability of success goes from seventy to eighty, or or down from seventy to six, whatever it is. So I think you have to be upfront with people that a lot of it is just guessing because we don't know the path of returns what they're going to be or or what your life is going to be like. So I think a lot of it is really just not only helping people understand their goals but clarifying them for them and helping them see what different decisions can can mean for the potential. And then then obviously. A lot of the future is, you know, it's planning, but it's also guessing too, right? <laughs> a lot of it is guessing. And then so the whole point of the plan is not like that first time in that 70 or 80 page document that you talk about. It's the process of it and it's updating it as you go and having, you know, these quarterly meetings or monthly meetings or yearly meetings, wherever it is, and updating and saying, you know, what's changed? And then how will that change what you're trying to get out of this money? And so I think a part of it is just this fluent process that is ongoing constantly. And it's up to the advisor to to tell the person that you know we're setting expectations, but then we're showing you as reality comes in line with those expectations, if things are better or worse. Now here's what we need to do. and and a lot of it is for people having you know tough conversations sometimes and, and, and especially with interest rates where they are, and telling people, you know either you're going to have to work longer or you're going to have to spend less in retirement and change your standard of living. Um, or you're not gonna be able to accomplish everything you want to, or, you know, a lot of these things, some of it is, is setting expectations and having hard conversations with people who aren't as prepared as they think they are, or should be. So, well,
1: well, even, even so, so I think what Adam's getting at is, is the use of the financial planning tool as a sales mechanism ah, okay. and, and the implications that come with that. Because if I go to one wealth manager or financial planner, he provides me a plan and says, Hey, you're here, just do lots of equities. Um, and and check the box. You're there only accounting for a 50, 50 percentile outcome versus a thoughtful advisor that says, no, you have to save more. Future returns are going to be lower because the bond component is at zero. Valuations might be here or there. And so we we have to acknowledge the starting point. And so when you think it, it makes it really hard for the thoughtful practitioner, who's going to try to guide that conversation when financial planning tools are weaponized as, as vehicles for sales.
3: Ooh, and, I like that word and, weaponized. That's yeah. yeah. Totally yes.
1: And so, so it's, it's really hard because the end investor is not well equipped as we've talked about on these concepts, even at a small institutional level, as you mentioned yeah, is not well equipped. So, so how, how might we offer some insight on, on this conversation as that what investors might look for to, to to try to guide their actions in, in sort of dissecting that or, or discerning, you know, a really good financial plan from maybe a, a a more, uh, a more sort of rosy, but less meaningful.
2: Part of the way that we view this is almost a little, I'm going to invert this a little bit. And part of it is working with the clients who aren't looking for something that you can't or won't give them. And so the way that we've done our whole process with building our business is trying to. Uh, create a lot of trust by putting out our content. And so people come to us and they kind of know us already. And if they're coming to us and they're asking for something that we can't or won't provide, and they, they want you to hit grand slams and home runs, and they're looking for, you know, I want 15% a year. And we, we're we open and honest and telling them that's okay that you want that. We don't think you can get that, but we're not going to try. So, you you know, good luck somewhere else. And we try to help them along the way and things to look for. So I think part of it is looking for the right partners and clients right off the bat in terms of people that, are looking for the right things, and and we've said in the past to people, if they see uh, our CEO Josh Brown on CNBC, we don't want them to come and say, "Hey, here's all my money, do whatever you want with it." We want to make sure that they understand our process and set our expectations, and understand what we can and can't do for them, and what we own and why we own it. So part of it is is working with the right people and understanding. You know, there's still going to be people that slip through the cracks and say, "Yeah, I got it, I got it, whatever." And there are going to be clients that down the line aren't going to work, but part of it for us as a business is working with the right people. So we're not constantly on the phone with these clients who are saying, what's going on now? Why is the market's down today? What Now what? And and so it's getting those right relationships first to understand that you're not going to waste your time on these one or two clients who take up all your time and are just a big headache. And so we've had conversations with people who say, "You know, we're probably not right, the right fit for you. You're not the right fit for us. And, and here's the expectations that we're going to lay out. And we try to be open and honest and transparent about what we can do what we can't do. And again, just talking about the fact that, that those financial planning documents that you said can be weaponized are used as part of the process, but they're not the be-all end-all obviously, because so much of it is constantly in flux and changing. So I think that's part of it is just developing trust and in, in working with the right clients to begin with. Well, I yeah. think, yeah, it's a,
0: it's a auto, like self-selection is so key. And I think one of the wonderful things about the content marketing that you guys put out that we've also focused on is that you simply get people flooding in that are your people, for the most part. There's gonna be a few stragglers here and there, but it is a, a wonderful way of putting your personality, your values out there, and actually capturing the right individuals that, then you, that are willing, like the they're, they're horses not being led to water, but they're in the water ready to drink, um, right. is, is 90% of the battle as you're building your, your wealth business, I think. So uh, absolutely key. So, sorry, so Michael, let me let me
1: just yeah, no, go ahead. That's great. let Let's dig into just a couple of um, maybe examples of things. if we, If we look at a financial plan, so one of the things that uh, when we're reviewing a financial plan as an example of something that i would i would I would point someone to look for is some sort of volatility assumption in the underlying investment assets because because of the difference between the geometric return and the arithmetic return and how those compound in wealth, so, you know, if someone has a financial plan, I would want, I would want to see something that addressed that in some way. I think maybe if we all go around and think of that one thing that that, hey, listen, if you've got a financial plan, it should, it should address that issue in, in some way. If it doesn't address that issue, then you should ask some questions. And maybe I'll throw that's my example, but I'll throw that back to you guys just to think about an example that an individual Uh, Advisor um, can can be familiar with, and an individual and investor could maybe you know point to and ask the question of the advisor, and and hope to get a robust answer.
0: You know, when it comes to that, I've always uh, you know we do our one page financial plan, right? And that one page gives you a probability outcome. And the line that I use is uh, a line that my mom used to use on me all the time. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, and that appeals to every human that I've ever spoken to, right? We're like. This is a plan. What are the chances that this that this is the way it's going to turn out for you? Right? This is the medium reality. Do you actually believe me or this page? Or are we going to have to iterate every year? You're going to get a bonus that you didn't expect. You're going to get an inheritance you didn't expect. You're going to lose your job. You're going to get sick. You're going to be healthier. You're going to live longer. All these things, a financial advisor, me, I can't do anything about that. All we can do and all we can help you with is give you a rough estimate, but no that every single thing, throw that out the window. So whomever's coming with a 54 page plan with insane detail, that is in our world, curve fitting, data mining, right? You're not gonna get any value from those. You need to know that life has changed and we're gonna be here for you as things go by. You wanted a rough estimate, here's a one page, let's not waste too much time on it. Roughly, you're in the right direction and we're gonna iterate every single year. That's, thats I, I also think the thing is
3: important. I agree, and I think it's important for people to realize that it's not just individuals who who have these um, biases and, and make decisions suboptimally. I, I re- recall Mike; you'll, you'll remember going to this presentation from Canada's largest um, community foundation. So it's a huge uh, institutional foundation with uh, you know a, a large. Uh, prominent board of directors and lots of internal processes and, and lots of internal staff, and I, I remember going to a presentation by the CIO and hearing how they um, had come to the realization that since their liabilities were inflation indexed, that they their benchmark wasn't the market, but was rather a um, a, a return, which was a function of their um, distribution rate plus their Expected inflation rate, right? And and so they went out with a new RFP. They we're going to reshuffle the portfolio. And we're going to, we're going to do things a little differently. And they went out to seven firms. How did they source the firms? <laughs> well, they went to their board members, who were all you know senior uh, partners at major investment in- institutions, and asked them for referrals. And so they got these referrals. It's seven or eight um, different investment firms, and so. They went out with RFPs to these investment firms. And they said, what we want is a portfolio that will do 5% plus inflation for um, in perpetuity. And of, and I forget what the number is. Maybe it was seven or eight or 10 or 11. I don't know. But anyways, all but one came back and said, I'm sorry, but in the current um, market environment, we can't present you with a portfolio that we feel has a high confidence of delivering on your investment objectives, <laughs> which actually from a silver lining standpoint, was pretty impressive, right? You've got a bunch of profit-motivated investment companies who came back and said, I'm going to turn down this revenue because I actually don't think I can meet your objectives as fiduciaries, which was great. We had one, they had one uh, firm come back and say, yes, we think we can meet your objectives. Here's how we're going to do it. And what did they do? Instead of reflecting, going back and reflecting on whether their RFP was reasonable, whether objectives were reasonable, they... Gave the mandate to the one firm that said that they could meet the objectives. Right. So, so the the lesson just being, you know, there are actually a lot of really um, high quality, uh, high integrity firms and advisors out there. But um, it's not just institutions, or not just not just individuals that make bad decisions or or are not equipped to make good decisions about which advisor to go with. Institutions make very similar bad choices.
2: So sure. We, one of the stories Barry Ridholtz always likes to tell is we had this person come to us, really wealthy person, you know, 10 plus million dollars. And they said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick you and three other advisors. And yeah. after a year, whoever has the best returns is going to get all my money. And so, <laughs> and it's, you don't realize the, the crazy- we get those calls every now and then too. That, yeah. you're, that you're running when when you do that. And I think the other way to look at it too, to think about some conversations, talk about like tough conversations- there's also people who come to us who have already won the game. They have more than enough money they're ever going to need. So even though they can't make a ton of money in safer assets, it's like balancing this willingness, need, and ability to take risks. So some of these people, they made money by taking insane risks. But now you need to kind of talk them off the ledge and say, you know, you're gonna be fine if you take, you know, less risks than you have now and you just have some of your money in tax exempt bonds and you know, and so it's like pulling people back too. That's that's the other side of the equation where you're not promising these people that you're gonna make them into, you know. Double and triple the money over the few years. You're you're talking about. Let's take some of this and not mess it up. So a lot of people, it is that that changing that mindset from I'm building wealth to now, yeah, I'm preserving it and I'm not going to mess it up at this point. And and really, you're taking too much risk.
1: You know what's so interesting about that Ben too, and 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 guys, remind me. I think it's it's from Moishe Malevsky's work, or I think that's where I remember this from, and it might have been Paul Samuelson. But they, they they talked about your risk tolerance actually being relatively stable through time. That if you have a high risk tolerance, you have that through your entire life. And so here, and I forget, I'm, I forget the reference point there. No, so it's, it's, Samuelson. it's Samuelson exactly. Yeah, right. because
3: yeah, because it's the volatility of wealth, not the volatility of of, um, of incremental returns. Yeah.
1: Right. So here you have someone who has had an insatiable desire for risk throughout their entire life they have all the money that they could possibly spend for generations yet it will be entirely unsatisfying to give them a portfolio of t bills if if we think about you know samuelson's thoughts on this and it's it's a really interesting sort of balance that you know a, a, an advisor whoever in whatever capacity is thrust into in in that particular paradigm and I don't know if you. I had I had, a client,
0: I had a client just like that, uh, an executive in, in one of the Can- Canada's largest banks. He was a frontier um, executive that took over South America and made it work. And when he retired, um, we had a conversation. And I said, "Look, we need, you know you retired. You gotta you got your nest egg. Is what we're gonna do? Give him a relatively conservative portfolio." And he's like, "No, no, no. I, I want like that 30 40 vol twenty percent annualized rate of return opportunity." I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It took me four or five months, not to talk him into it because I couldn't, but to understand where he was coming from. He had a pension that was paying him like 10 grand a month, right? He's like, that's all I need to live off of. I got this nest egg that now I want to I want to have a shot at being like insanely wealthy. And I, I'm willing to go broke in that part of my life in order to try to achieve that. So his risk tolerance was as high as it ever was. I was never going to talk him out of it. And we just structured a portfolio for him that way sometimes you just have to give in it it is
1: interesting that the this idea is that you know you have if you're on a pension you've got to take the board the board says here's our desires please go get managers in this risk zone when you're dealing with an individual as an individual advisor you're you're sort of in the same position it is to some degree their money and we are trying to steward that or help guide them um but what what are your thoughts there, Ben? Do you, do you take the hard line on that and try and get them, you know, to 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 take the less risk, or do you say, well, I've I've informed you at least of your opportunities. You're a big boy, Cabedum Tour, and I'm I'm happy to help. It's better that I guide you through this labyrinth than somebody else. What are your thoughts? And
2: one there? of the other release fails we'll do is we'll tell someone take five or ten percent of that money and we're going to put it into a brokerage account for you, and you can buy and sell crypto and penny stocks and go nuts. You know, so, so that's another, if you want yeah. to really scratch that itch, that, that can help people too. Some people just need to have that release and just, just yeah. get it, you know, get it out of their system. So that, that's another way that we think behaviorally, maybe that's suboptimal, but it can, can help them stick with the rest yeah. of their portfolio. Then, then I fine. Love that.
1: we we call that the cocktail portfolio yeah. because they got to have something to talk about at their cocktail party with their, with their, with their guys and gal friends that, you know, as a, as a hobby or whatever, that, whatever the case the may Facebook, be. Facebook, Tesla. Yeah, you yeah. know i i want to switch gears just a touch here because there was an area of your book that i was really interested in in learning more about and i'm not sure that i'm aware but the changing nature of retirement so what did you learn there like like the the, the idea of retirement is a new concept is is that the case or or have we had um in previous generations have there been forms of retirement and then i don't know if you had an opportunity to look back and see through time like you know, Two hundred years ago, what did someone do when they wanted to retire, or was that even a thing? So, just switch gears a little bit and dig into that for me or for I us. Did, if you, I can.
2: mean the the retirement plan of old used to be you died, right? <laughs> right. right. You worked so, and died. Yeah, some of the <laughs> like like I think it was like thirty percent of all males by the end of the eighteen hundreds lived past their sixty fifth birthday. So, when they first rolled out even Social Security in the thirties, they were assuming people were going to live seven to ten years, maybe. And so back then it just, I mean, if you have parents or grandparents who were involved in World War II, you know, it was after that generation that people finally started having to think about it because, you know, it wasn't the case that, especially in the States that everyone had a pension, but a lot more people did than do now. So it was a lot easier and you didn't have to plan for quite as long and people still want to have that mythical 65 age or whatever to retire. But now they're, you're talking two, three decades that you have to have your money last for you in some cases. So it, it is a new... And I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard for people because there's not very many good um, people you can look up to in terms of, hey, this person planned it out well and, and they lived until 90 and their money didn't run out. So a lot of people just don't have good role models to look at in terms of, of retirement because a lot of the personal finance habits are so bad with, with their, their parents or the people that they... their their friends or whoever. So uh, it is one of those things where you're really on your own. And even though we have 401k plans and such. In the United States, only fifty percent of people of companies have access to one, and so I think it's probably more like For thirty really? to forty percent of people are even taking part in them. So it's almost my wish list would be that, like, the government would open it up to anyone who has a job, and, and this would maybe another be another opt out thing. Like, you know, Australia has the the forced retirement savings where they make their employer put in a certain duration. percentage in. Yeah, I would people would you know go into that kicking and screaming because freedom or whatever. But in I America- some, some people need that. Where again, it, well, you'd have to do a nudge where you're you're opting out instead of being forced to save. But unfortunately, a lot of people just don't have access to retirement plans either, and there it's hard for them to go through the process of opening up an account for themselves because they just don't know where to turn. So a lot of there's so many people that are just left out because they just don't know any better. Yeah, well, mathematically, saying,
1: speaking, so mathematically speaking, sort of. Mathematically speaking, the idea of a defined benefit plan that is mandatory, that shares the, the retirement risk with the mortality table is an insanely um, important part of a, of a well-designed retirement plan. Having some amount of income that if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs with respect to, you know, your financial planning and, and uh, food and shelter and, and having that shared risk, you're not having to plan for the the 85th percentile because you could have bad luck in your investment returns, you could live really long, right? That that you're taking that one side of the risk off the table. And that to me is in, incredibly important. And it's it's something that's missed as as corporations, because of tax rules, move to define contribution because they don't want that liability on their balance sheet. And so, you know, I think individuals should should really look at that as a as significant benefit when they're interviewing employers. Yeah. If the employer has a defined benefit plan, that is a massive benefit to you.
2: Yeah, I have a, I have a, my brother works for the U S government and that's one of the main reasons he stayed in that job because he knows at a certain age he's going to get a pension and he's, he's calculating the present value of that. And it's a pretty big number. If you really think about it, that, that income, people don't realize it. They don't put it in those terms. If this would be the equivalent of X amount of money in a portfolio, and that this is one of the reasons that I tell people in the states that social security is never going away because that is the fallback for so many people. I think the number I found was like a quarter of people who are retired rely exclusively on social security and 50% of the people have half their income come from when they're retired. So you'd be, you're signing a death wish as a politician if you ever got rid of something like that. So it's actually been one of the more successful programs in uh, in history probably in terms of, of helping people. because. All that stuff that came out of the great depression there was no financial backstop for anyone back then right there there was no there was no unemployment insurance there was no social security you were on your own and that that's why that 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 generation turned into the uh baby boomer you know the the frugal generation that really held things back and that it was funny there was a lot of people at the beginning of this pandemic who said that's going to happen again. We're going to have this you know, this generation of people who really pull things back and, and they become more frugal and they save more because the pandemic really showed that we have a problem. And of course, the opposite has happened where it's unleashed the, <laughs> uh, all the speculation. And obviously, yeah, part of that is, yeah, I, I guess the lesson is never bet against the con- U.S. consumer. But back then, they didn't have the same backstop we have now where the government could send out checks and, and, and the Fed could throw all this money. And so you didn't have that in the past where people... really on their own you know for better or worse is it right to live in
3: a risk-free environment i mean wow it's every generation this is is what i was getting at
0: like i um so i don't know if you know Ben, but i was born and raised in peru and i gotta tell you like retirement has never been a thing that people discussed up until recently when they about 15 20 years ago the government started creating a superannuation fund where eight to ten percent of every employer's paycheck would uh, employee's paycheck has to go to the superannuation, one of, four, one of five options. What's been interesting about this is that nobody that in my father's generation that I know of has ever stopped working. Like retirement is not a thing they think about. They're, yeah. they, they, Even lawyer friends of mine that I know have two or three side gigs not because they necessarily need the money, but because they know that they're going to de- need to depend on that if something goes wrong in their careers. Yeah. You know, you got a soccer field where they put cameras on in the north of Peru. Another one's like making asparagus on the side. Everybody is constantly hustling. And what's happening recently is we're getting to the first leg of people forced to retire and forced to use that superannuation money. They have the option of putting it into an annuity or taking the cash and a bit of a penalty. Everybody's taking the cash, I know of interesting and investing it in, in, in a business wow but you you bang your head mike but i actually encourage when, when I, I get it when, when my clients are like when should i retire i'm like never you should never retire i've seen people retire and i've seen them like look 10 years older and five oh, years. that was
2: i found some right? of my you research you continue
0: to work her life is hard you should work and be and have a, a hard life until the day that you die because it's fulfilling and it'll keep you going
2: I, I kind of agree. There was some research that I found in this for my book that said people who retired early actually died earlier because they, they don't have the same camaraderie of going into the office or they don't have that same drive to do something. And I, I, I still have a ways to go. Obviously, now I'm I'm just about to turn forty this year, but I can't imagine giving up and never doing anything. That'd be I would ha- I would go crazy, and my wife would kick me out of the house because she would go crazy because I, I feel like I need to do something. So I think that is, that's one of the ways that this whole concept of retirement is changing for people. And I think that's something young people are, have already, you know, ready themselves for. I, I tell them, the millennials, you know, you're going to have social security, even if it's pushed back a little bit, but they say, I'm planning on not having it. I'm planning on being my own. And I'm going to work until I'm 75 or whatever it is. And maybe that's the right mindset to have that, you know, and, and if things work out better than they planned, great, you're in a good position to do whatever you want. But I think a lot of people are in that mindset of, I'm just going to, continue working because it does fulfill me and it helps a little bit. I think it's I a do wild think we need experiment. to acknowledge the
3: potential for that statistic to be, um, correlation but not causation right like maybe, maybe people retire early because they don't feel well or yeah, you
2: know they, be, yeah <laughs> yeah and that's the inside of it in
3: that golfing,
2: just relax
3: i'm not like, undermining your
2: the people who ambitions
3: to, for the, the ver-
2: vitriol
1: on
0: the fact eh? El-
1: yeah. elderly, elderly entrepreneurship
3: i'm just saying like i'm telling you
0: i'm telling you my father is still an entrepreneur he works with other 75 year old dudes that are coming up with ideas and small businesses here. They have the money for it, so they're funding it. They're getting younger people to help <laughs> okay. them run. This is like the last thing I want to do to my clients and my children and anybody that I talk to is give is not make them think that they can't make something to do with what they have and ha- and have this entrepreneurial ability, even when you have a full-time job, to have one or two things on the on the burner I, that, I, that I may agree. actually help you. I agree. and the moment I that you just... say 65 we're going to get you there freedom 55 was that the thing you, you triggered in windows 10 and 55 stuff
2: <laughs>
3: well, all <laughs> of my all of my it's parents like friends, friends are dog. like can yeah. you get you're me out done. of here how can you get me out <laughs> of this job that i'm doing of course that's why you need 5 years before i Well, at ben 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 found his passion and look at him now
2: but there's people who who have that plan of i'm going to work longer and they might not be able to, because at that stage, you're I'm one of outside. the higher earners in the company. You could be forced to retire That's at an great. early age. Um, we, we've had we've had to put provisions in our own company, because Barry Ridholtz, our namesake. He, he'll he work until we put drag him out, out of there. And so we we, we, we almost have to put a uh, thing on there. I mean, he's going to be coming to the office until he's 90, probably. But it, for some people that, that want to do that, yeah, you almost have to give him an out. But we, but we, again, have a, we have a name it's, for that. This we, is it's
1: what? The retirement party starts with,
0: clear! Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) 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 Look, again my point here is none of these uh elderly statesmen that my father hangs out with are getting jobs nobody's hiring them they're making their own business and if you don't have the experience of doing that and know how all how you can make it happen the gumption to do it if you haven't done it in your life then yeah you retire you play golf and you die i'm trying to you know get people to be self sufficient even like, even if they like their job because they may get might get pushed retirement is not an option I applaud Women the
3: effort and, an I, and I and I think it's a, a, a it's, virtuous it's, position to take it's a just, wild like, experiment I'm going I'm going to change
1: work. the topic because Rodrigo's <laughs> triggered and we need to move on <laughs> so I just well let's get it go somewhere else so let's talk a little bit about that, that really in, uh, important inflection point where you go from saver to spender, uh, the portfolio goes into decumulation. What did you find there? What Any any um, really key points that you want to share, um, Ben, and and your thoughts
2: on that? I didn't really get into that too much in this book. I have looked at this before, and I know you you have all written in some of your books about that, the sequence of return risk, and that, that is one that I think every retiree we've talked to you know, for the past 10 years has said they just assume... When I retire, there's going to be a bear market, and I'm screwed because you know you never want that bear market right when you retire and you try to pull the money out. Um, th- there's obviously ways to protect against that, but I think that is one of the things that worries a lot of people is that their timing is going to be horrible and that the it's Murphy's law that the worst thing is going to happen at the worst possible time and they're going to have bad luck. And unfortunately, as any investor, luck is such a huge element of this game. It's hard for people to admit it, especially when you're you're working with all these masters of the universe that are so smart, but just coming up during the right time and having the great returns. You know, how many, I don't know, I, I don't want to take away from their track records, but how many hedge fund legends were crowned in the 80s and 90s because they started off with high interest rates and lower valuations. And so, so much of it is timing luck and obviously that, that's part of the reason why these big financial plans are, are not set in stone because you're gonna have to update and, and maybe make some course corrections along the way as as reality hits, you know, what your plans were. So, I think part of it is not setting, you know, everyone argues over this, what's the new withdrawal rate? Is it 4% or 3% or one point whatever it is? I, I've never heard of anyone who actually uses that rule to take their money out. No one actually says, I'm going to take a specific percentage out and then I'm going to increase it by inflation. It, it's, you know, when things are going really well, maybe you take out a little more or you set aside a buffer or when things are going really bad in the markets, then you stop taking it out. So I think you just have to have a backup plan in terms of, I, I'm not going to sell my riskiest assets at the worst possible moment because selling when they're down is is just gonna compound the issue. So it's it's having enough safe assets to get you through those times and or maybe rebalance. So I think that's part of it. It's just having some flexibility in your portfolio to see you through that stuff. And because yeah, again, no one actually does it. So people argue over the sixty forty portfolio or the four percent rule. And I found no one actually uses those specific numbers. You know, it, it's always unique kinda to, to someone else someone's circumstances or plan.
3: It's like that's a neat point because I think that speaks to the another reason why the moneyness of stocks has accelerated in the modern era because i mean you can just think about the reflexive impact of most people thinking about their spending in the context of their of, of the current wealth that they observe in their portfolio right so when the wealth in the portfolio is up their spending goes up and so you've got this positive reflexive mechanism happening cuz earnings Every dollar that's spent through the Kalecki equation flows through to the corporate balance sheet, right? So as long as people are feeling wealthier, and of course, the, the Fed relies on this exact relationship in um, their job owning and, and driving asset prices up, but you can imagine people feel wealthy, they spend more, corporate earnings goes up, then you can justify higher stock prices, which means people feel wealthier, which means that their spending goes up. And But the same principle happens in reverse where if the if the market goes down they typically will then adjust their spending lower which means lower corporate earnings which means lower prices which means lower wealth which means etc right so it's it's um i always wonder like it's uh, we struggled with like with this about 10 years ago where if you just use sort of u.s benchmarks in order to guide your planning um then you'll make certain decisions. If you use global benchmarks, you use different decisions. If you use sort of more, what happens if your if, if returns during retirement fall in the bottom, you know fifty percentile of of returns over any random fifty year period across all different markets. Like it it turns out especially in late if you start saving in later years the um the return assumption and especially in retirement that return assumption makes a really really big difference and. You know, I, I, I want to espouse simplicity, but I also want to acknowledge that there's actually a lot of randomness. Like, do you think about how to make portfolios more resilient, especially in retirement, and not be so reliant on sort of long-term average U.S. Yeah. returns?
2: And one of the things we tell people now, it's like, if, if your portfolio isn't in a position now after the last 10 years where things have been going great, you know, don't, you know, the next 10 years, then if you're already behind, you've got a lot of work to do. Right, because you can't plan on the last ten years happening again. So, mm-hmm. so that's one of the things. Um, and we're constantly updating our assumptions, especially. I, I mean, the, the stock market. Who knows? Interest rates are what they are. Those are the anchor, and that's 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 the easy one for people. That's that's where we're setting concrete expectations. Saying, listen, we know what this is. So either we accept this, or we move out on the risk curve. And and you basically have no you know no other option in terms of you have to accept some sort of risk whatever it is. So so that that's part of the the conversation. I I did find I I wrote a chapter in here about, you know, to your point about starting late. So I looked at the numbers and I found let's say you start when you're 45 or 50 years old, you have nothing saved for retirement, and you compare two strategies. One where you save ten percent of your money and you make a 12% return over twenty years. One where you save twenty percent of your money but you only make a six percent return. If if you did that using the same savings assumptions and the same income, you come out ahead by doubling your savings rate versus doubling your investment return. And obviously, sure. doubling your investment return is much harder than doubling your savings rate. So, especially for someone that late in the game that is that is really stuck behind the eight you have
3: more control over it, certainly. Yes.
2: Yeah, that, that's the, and, and that's kind of one of the things that we tell our clients all the time is like, we're trying to focus on what we control. We don't control what the FED does or the president does or tax rates, any of that stuff. We have to take that into account, obviously, but we can't control that. So so we do have to focus on the stuff we can control, which is your spending, your savings rates, all this stuff. Um, where we locate your your assets in terms of tax implications, you know, all, all that kind of stuff, which is kind of boring to so many people, but that but that's the really important financial planning aspect of the investment process.
1: So so what's so great about the increased savings that I think is is sometimes either underappreciated or missed is if you're saving 20% you're living on $80, yes. not $90. And lifestyle is sticky. Yes. When you drive a nice car, it's not fun to drive a shitty car. When you play at a, a private golf course, it's not fun to go have to go to the public course. And so if you save that 20%, remember that your lifestyle, you're living on $80, not $90. Yeah. And that's Re- when you yeah, retire. Yeah, replacing retirement, yeah. Correct. So, so now when you go into retirement, the income expectation isn't the ninety dollars; it's the eighty dollars.
3: You're used to driving the Toyota instead of the Lexus, and you're used to right. playing at a you know medium golf course instead of the right.
1: And, and the know. decisions that you make when we come to happiness is about being able to say yes to your friends. Hmm. But generally, you know, your your happiness quotient is about being able to say yes to all the things that your circle of friends are doing. So that might alter your circle of friends slightly. But in the longer term, it's going to make you happier in the sense that you'll be able to participate in that. Your lifestyle stays steady. And so it's not it's not horrible. It's just it's and it's a really interesting side benefit to that. um, I think that gets kind of. I had
0: had an attorney who came to me and he's like, "Okay, so I got a million dollars saved um, and I want to and I'm going to be forced to retire in five years. And I'm like, okay, great. How much do you spend a year? Well, my lifestyle is such, you know, my wife has horses and whatnot. I spend $700,000 a year. And I said, well, you're going to, here's, your, here's what you need going to need to do. You need to get another job for the next 20 years. And you're going to need to cut your spending by two thirds to be able
3: well, to retire. You have $14 million in a savings account? Yeah. <laughs>
0: like, no, but this is, this is it, right? And, and it was, look, you're either going to have to cut your savings, your spending yeah. now. And have a, a thoughtful conversation with your wife, and, and make decisions. Go to go live in South America, find a place that you think you might like. Think about that type of retirement, or it's gonna be a cold bath for her when you get when when you get thrown out. And of I,
2: I think there is hope for people who are later in life like that because I have three young kids, and kids are obviously expensive. If, if you looked at the the money on that, you know, it. I don't even want to, you know, okay. know what those numbers are. But hopefully, as you're later in life that's when you can really supercharge your savings because the kids are out of the house, hopefully done with college. And then you're, um, you know, they're off your tab hopefully. And and I can understand actually why a lot of parents don't save enough. You know, the, the whole idea is put your oxygen mask on first and save for yourself. But how many parents are going to say that when they're trying to save for their kid and not let them have as much college student loan debt or whatever. So I can get why a lot of people get behind on this stuff. It, it makes sense to me now that I have kids, I understand, you know, understand why you'd want to spend more money on your kids, but that's and they're the so time
1: grateful, time. always. Yeah, having, yeah, right. <laughs> <having> <laughs> yeah, they eight, 19 and prices. 22
2: year old kids
1: and watching you guys have, your they're, they're just so grateful for it. But I think it's that's, but, but that's
2: one, family. hopefully when you can play catch up a little bit and take that money that you've been spending on your kids and paying for their college or whatever it is, and then put it into your, and, and try to play catch up because obviously there's a lot of people who, who need Dude, it. They
1: don't leave home until they're 30 now.
3: right. (laughs) It's it's a
0: good
1: idea. It's a good idea. One
0: of the things you recently (laughs) wrote, like it it was an eye opener and, and I loved it. I'm going to implement it. I'm going to think about it deeply every single year make sure I plan it right. And it's this idea of, yes, you know, sometimes you need to spend today, you need to live today. We're young today. And one of the key things is, is that vacation with your family. Yeah. Right. You, you mentioned that you have, you rented a, or bought a house, um, and yeah, that I look to you with an expense that you see as a savings
2: yeah Expand I look at it that. as an investment in experiences and, and I I had so I have I have three-year-old twins and a six-year-old daughter and um, wow. yeah the the three kids was never in, in the plan the twins was kind of a surprise but man
0: plans uh, God laughs
2: yeah I but we had a, a friend who a number of years ago said you know they had kids the same age and said you know we have 15 or 16 summers left of them hopefully unless they that's, 30. What
0: got me. That's what
2: and, got me. and and I, that really hit me. And, and I, and so, you know, we could have taken this, this extra income and, and put it towards our savings and maybe retired a little bit. But I, my wife and I had the conversation, like, what if we do this every summer and we go to the place on the, on the lake and we build memories there. And we, so we've done it for the last three years. And I could have, I could have taken the opportunity cost of that and said, well, over a 15 or 20 year period, I'm missing out on X dollars based on this growth. But I never look at it like that because we're, we're building these memories. And so I want to have that balance. And, and I think for some people, it's the opposite where I, I've always, for whatever reason, been a saver. I think it was just kind of passed down to me from my parents. They were always relatively frugal and took care of their money. And so I think that, that helped me a lot. So going the other way and breaking those savings habits and, and enjoying some of it today and not just you know saving it for some far off time in the future, I think that balance is is really important. And for some people, it's the other way where they spend too much and they need to balance the other way. But, but that's that's been something for me where... I'll never look at that money as as the opportunity cost of missed you know market returns or whatever because it's it's really money well spent for for our family.
3: I want to make sure really? we get to some of the questions, right? Because because Brian Moriarty has well, uh, just, just chimed but, in.
1: Yeah, it, we can backtrack, that's for sure. So if you'd like to do that, we can. Why don't we? Uh, Brian, by the way, is going to be on next week right so so we could cover it next week as well but let, let's hit it if you, if Absol- you
3: yeah. well also i'm trying to curry favor since he's my dungeon master and you know i want to make sure
2: that i just <laughs> i'm just, I'm just kidding but, yeah he was,
3: he was asking noise. about sequencing risk we were talking about earlier and uh um you know it, there's there's all these strategies about how to manage that transition from saving to retirement and um so i guess there's a bunch of studies and actually one of my one of my Favorite studies was from Michael Kitces, which I think I read in like 2005 or six or something. And and um, I think what essentially he did, although he didn't or he didn't articulate it this way, but I've since gone back and sort of reframed it this way. But essentially, he looked at the what what the he looked at it as the correlation between the returns in the first five years after retirement and your probability of success, or or the first fifteen years after retirement and your probability of success, and the probability. As a function of the returns in your first five years, um, the correlation was about 0.8, and the correlation between um, returns junior for 15 years after retirement and probability of success was in the 99% range, mm-hmm. right? But when you back it out, it ends up being really what is the effective duration of your retirement liability, and and so when I, when I sort of backed it out that way, I realized that the effective duration of a typical Male, sort of looking at the male mortality tables for US, of, of a male um, uh, distribution liability in retirement is about 14, 15, 16 years, right? And so it really does, this the volatility or the dispersion or the risk in your portfolio returns in the first five years to 15 years after retirement has this massively disproportionate um, impact on the sustainability of your of your retirement income. And and so I, I don't think that that's properly accounted for in, in many retirement plans. And I don't think you have to go quite as um, extreme as what uh, Brian articulated there. I don't think he's sort of advocating for it. He sort of just said, this was studied. Um, but, but I do think you have to give some thought to how you manage that risk and manage the effective duration of your retirement assets and just how sensitive it is to early returns. What do you um, think
0: about a cash wedge there, something like that? But hold hold on, I think what people miss here is that we're assuming that inflation is going to remain steady during your first five years. And if you were an American in the the mid 70s, in five years, your purchasing power got cut in half. So what about the volatility of inflation?
3: Yeah, really good point.
0: Uh, So there really isn't any other way, but you're constantly balancing out risks and i'm just tired of not uh, people not seeing the inflation risk just because we haven't had in 30 years yeah I,
2: I do um, like that idea of of the looking at your allocation in terms of spending so he talked brian talked about here two years of spending I, i've had some people say email me and tell me they, they keep four years of spending again whatever you know however you can manage that but if you look at it in terms of like a, a portfolio let's say you have 30 percent of your portfolio in cash or bonds or something safe like that, if you tried to break that out into how many years of spending is that going to get me, I think that's a form of mental accounting, but that's another way of thinking through this of, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to go through first before I touch anything else riskier. Something like that where you you consider a, a, some sort of a safe asset as your your fallback plan and figure out how much to you is safe enough to get you through however long a bear market could last. Risky. But again, no, I can that Mike was yeah.
3: describing. Once okay,
0: exactly. again, I want to emphasize that this is we keep on calling this a safe asset when it can it, it may not be your 20 if you have $20,000 worth of spending and inflation doubles. Um and, and it has listen, it has in the US, it has in every other country on the planet. You all of a sudden your $20,000 only buys you half as much. Right? So again, I think you know the story that I had when you know my my grandfather had, was an accountant in Peru, had saved a bunch of money. He had a million dollars worth equivalent in Peruvian pesos. And in six months, inflation went to 7,000% and lost it all. Like His purchasing power went away in six months. Now, that's a third world country. It could happen, but it is a real thing that if there was any time that a developed nation needs to think about that deeply and make sure that there's a, there's a right balance in their portfolio, it is now. And I think the idea of a cash wedge or being in mostly bonds and cash is a dangerous idea.
3: Uh, No, you're right. I mean, it's really, it's diversification, right? You're diversifying into, into a safe asset. And I think your point, which is extremely well taken is that cash is only safe in certain environments and it actually ends up being extremely dangerous in other environments. And just because we haven't seen those environments recently, doesn't mean that they, they, they can't happen. And, and, you know, it's funny because we've really, it's been amazing just in the last six or eight weeks, we've had, um, you know, a, a baker's dozen um, really large institutions reach out and the conversations all focus on the fact that they're under um, allocated to an inflation basket, right? They're sort of identifying that there's this major embedded inflation risk in their portfolio and, and they don't feel well equipped. And And how, how do you guys um, discuss or think about an allocation to an inflation basket at Ritholtz?
2: Yeah, that, that, that's, I, I think too, that's one of the ones that just, it's been so long since people have had to deal with that. It's, <laughs> that's pretty tough. I mean, I think the, the, the obvious answer, if you're, if you're thinking on the bond side, is that tips are the the easiest way to think about hedging that. I, I think tips are one of the the most unique assets that there is that probably not enough people talk about, just from the simplicity of it. Um, a, a lot of people don't really like those because they, they, they still think of them as a as a treasury bond. Um but, but we also think about it, it, getting back to Mike's point about like saving more and in lifestyle inflation. So if you build in a higher inflation rate into like your financial plan immediately, right? Where you're, you're talking about, okay, the current inflation rate has been 1% to 2% for a long time. Um, what if we showed you an inflation rate for a financial plan where it's 4 or 5%? And how does that change the assumptions for something like that? So we look at it the opposite way of that. Um, in terms of how would that impact your financial plan if your spending is is increasing that much. So we so kind of how think, much
3: more would, would you want to save in order to insure yourself against that yeah, type and of and, risk. and
2: could your could your financial plan potentially handle that um, under some different assumptions and if, if inflation got to those levels again where they're they're much higher than they are today. And so so that's one way to kind of stress test it from the financial planning side of things. Do you, yeah, do you yeah it really comes down to this: other structural
1: assets that that can perform in in an you know sort of inflationary, whether it's inflationary growth, stagflationary, um, deflationary bust, or any any other assets that you guys consider or sleeves, if you will. Besides
2: tips, so something like gold is is something that we have in in certain strategies in our portfolio. So we think that that can can help in those situations. And of course, that was one of the better performing assets in the '70s when things get out of hand. And I don't think it even has to be the '70s for it to make an impact. Because it's been so low now, I'm I'm curious what investor reaction would be if it was just a little higher than now, even like four percent, which is not what it you know not even double digits like it was in the '70s. What would what would your reaction be if it was three four percent, which is you know whatever double it is now? I think that would be interesting to see how well, investors on a 0% react. Zero
1: percent risk-free rate. Yeah. that's a that's a big spread. For sure. Yeah,
3: four, four or five percent inflation with yield curve control, holding Treasuries at one percent, would be a whole other type of risk yeah. that I think people haven't faced before, or not.
2: In the yeah. Last. Well, that that's, that's one of the things years. I found in the, the the crazy World War II one, where maybe that I think that could be the the analogy here is, you had this one to two year period where inflation jumped to eighteen percent following the war from all the spending, mm-hmm. and then it immediately went back down, which is it's crazy. So we had this one year jump where. They, they basically got all the debt out of their system. And they actually, the government at that time held the rates low. So rates stayed low, inflation jumped like 17 or 18%, and then it came back down. And and so you had this one period where you, you just had this huge loss of purchasing power. Then it came back in and things leveled out. I think that would be the interesting scenario too here where we get this huge jump and people freak out about, okay, the 70s are back again. And then it comes down and, and you know, that that's probably a better case for the government than anyone else because it, you know, takes away some of the, the debt that they... They own on a real basis, but I thought that was an interesting period where rates didn't really follow the inflation in that it, time frame. Yeah,
1: if mm-hmm. memory serves, was was that that was a bit about taking off price controls, though, right? W- wasn't right. it like that? It was that post was- World War II. There was a bunch of price controls. They removed those. Yeah, I'm and there am memory.
2: Yeah, there were there was there was wage control. There was wage ceilings too that they they took off. Right. With. That that had part, and you obviously had the boom following the war. <sighs> Yeah. But they controlled
0: the interest rates so, because they had a massive debt as a government, right? Right, yeah. So, you know, that's where gold, at the time, you you could buy, I think we have an index for gold miners during that period because gold was pegged. And the gold miners did really well during those scenarios. So there's always like, there's always an exit, right? There's always some pressure somewhere where you can benefit from, from those scenarios. Yeah, we I hope so. well guys what do you think
1: we're we're about an hour and 15 ben how are you for time
2: or or what do we uh have we anything that
0: we haven't covered in your book it's
2: been a great great conversation i'm again i'm still jealous of you guys for being in the caymans and uh me being in the cold weather but uh, i appreciate you guys having me on you're welcome to join us great. down Thanks here the next
1: time in the Palm yeah. and
2: whatnot. So no no, exactly. no, no,
1: any last thoughts for for uh, your book um, on on uh, everything about everything you ever needed to know? What do
0: you want investors to do? The three yeah. things that you want investors to do, favorite <laughs> yeah. to do. Oh, no, this is he's just got it. I'm sure he's got it.
2: No, yeah. man, this is this is the book that I wanted investment professionals to give to someone else in their life. So that's my only thing. Is hopefully this is a book that people will recommend to other people in their life that just need a little help and maybe just a kick in the pants to to just get started.
0: Good Christmas gift.
1: But, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a
2: stocking stuffer. Hopefully.
1: Yeah. yeah, I love it. Well, fantastic! Thanks for joining us. And uh, next week we have the one and only Brian Moriarty from. Uh, That's right. We'll what are joining great us too? And he's your dungeon I master. Know. He's mm-hmm. so Can't good. Wait. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we might. We, maybe we can even role play a session or two or something. I don't know. Oh,
3: are wow. you guys going to come I dress a bunch as of other yeah.
0: as, your, as your characters? <laughs> we
1: right. I want to see some good
3: backgrounds. I don't know if we can yeah. do that on. The we'll dress up here. and everything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Now I wonder, hey, I wonder if we have some like great outro music. Does Ani come on and give us some great I o- don't know. outro music? Ani, cue music. Hit it.
0: hit it while we sing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media, and if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.